In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Job sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes. Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. 
Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I want to start today with a quick survey. You ready? Well, just three simple questions. And if you, the answer is yes, just put your hand up. Don't worry about this. It's just, it's not being recorded. How many people here today are planning to murder someone in cold blood? Nobody? Okay. How many people here are planning to have an adulterous affair? Okay. Finally, how many people here are determined to ruin their life and the lives of those in their family they love the most this year? No one. What a virtuous group. (laughs) Now, of course, no one is planning to do any of those things. That would be absolutely ridiculous. But I ask the questions to make a simple point. Although no one plans to do things like these, the fact remains that many, many people do them every day. So how does it happen? From 2000 to 2005, I worked as a headhunter in central London, and that meant two hours of traveling every day on the train and the tube. What do you do with two hours sitting on the train and the tube every day? Looking back, I wish I'd used the time better. Some of the time, I did used to read my Bible and good books, but a lot of the time, especially on the way home when I was tired, I used to read the paper. Actually, more than one paper. At one point, I was getting through five newspapers a day. I was very well informed from the year 2000 to 2005. But in five years of reading the news, there was one thing I never got used to. I could never quite put it together. I couldn't get my head around it. It was that every single day in the papers, there were reports of terrible and horrific crimes being done by seemingly normal people. Crimes or vile moral behavior or perversion by people who seemed quite ordinary. They looked quite ordinary on the outside. I just, there's one image that stayed in my mind, even though it's, I don't know, 15 years ago, of a family photo, a really ordinary kind of bland family photo, a dad who was sort of middle-aged and paunchy, and a mum and four kids all sitting looking at the camera smiling. And the story was that the man had lost his job and had struggled with... uh, ill health and depression and they'd got into debt and things had spiraled out of control and one night he killed them all. He killed his entire family and then himself. And somebody found the bodies the next day. How does it happen? How on earth does it happen? Now people have got different ways of answering that question. One common way is to to find some categories. You find this a lot in the tabloid newspapers. They have a category that you can put someone in, and once they've labelled the person, it gives the rest of us permission to look down on them and judge them and reassure ourselves that we're not like that. Essentially, it's a way of reading the world as if some people are monsters and the rest of us are normal. 
Monsters may look normal, but actually they are monsters underneath. Sooner or later they expose and they do something monstrous. Oh, how horrible. And we read of their sins and their crimes and we mutter, thank God I'm not like them. I'm not a monster. But that is not actually an adequate way of reading reality, is it? The truth is far more uncomfortable. It's that we're all capable of doing dreadful, monstrous things. Everyone in here is capable of murder, of committing adultery, of ruining their life and the lives of those they love the most. Now, the Bible makes this point in lots of places, but the most powerful one, I think, is the story of David and Bathsheba. It's astonishing that the Bible is so honest about its heroes. What other book in the ancient world would record this shameful episode? And I believe that God wants to teach us some crucial lessons here about our own hearts and the nature of temptation and sin from this passage. Now, why do I say that we're all capable of doing dreadful things? Here's why. If David could do it, then you can. If David could do it, then you can. Just think about David. He's chosen by God for a great purpose. God looked on David's heart and he loved him. He said, he's the man after my own heart. God was with him strengthening him through many trials and David became greater and greater. David was a lover of God, a brave heart, a sweet singer of psalms, a truly great spiritual leader. He had everything. He did not seem a candidate for moral disaster and yet he fell. He fell quickly and tragically and the consequences of his fall led to death. Not his death straight away, and not just in his lifetime, but the unraveling of his family and the unraveling of the kingdom. First of all, it started with the death of a little baby. Now, in tragedy that spiraled through decades of generational sin, David's sin echoed in the, the years to come. Now, we need to wake up today, friends, and realize that if David could make such a mess, then so can you and so can I. We're always surprised when we read about some favorite pastor who fell into sin because we imagine that pastors are above such things. We're not. We all need to realize this and take serious measures to avoid it. Now, there is a sequence here in this chapter, 2 Samuel 11. By the way, if you've closed your Bible, please do open it again. We'll be looking at it together. It's page 314. This sequence, this sequence of events doesn't all happen at once. It unfolds like a slow motion video of a car crash. And I've found four points in this wonderful little book by Tim Chester, Dr. Tim Chester, who's already had a shout out today. So big day for Tim. And uh, I wanted to confess that I got my four points from Tim. And so I'm not sued for plagiarism later on. This is a wonderful book, To Samuel for You, published by the Good Book Company. Okay, four things. Neglecting our duty. Secondly, indulging our eyes. Thirdly, breaking our vows. Fourthly, hiding our sin. Neglecting our duty, indulging our eyes, breaking our vows, hiding our sin. Now, I know today, okay, listen, I know that we're going to touch on some of the most embarrassing and shameful and difficult struggles that we have in life to do with sexuality, to do with the heart. And my job as a preacher is to expose your temptation and sin to you, to you, to expose it and show you how ugly and dangerous it really is. 
Now, the purpose of doing this is not to condemn you, friend. It really isn't. It's to restore you. The worst thing that could happen today would be that as I'm preaching, you feel more and more shameful and you, it drives your temptation and sin underground. Now, one way that happens, by the way, and I'm speaking to everyone, is if people feel that the pastor or the preacher is out to get them, or they fear that if I actually confess my sin to somebody, my spouse or my brother or my sister, then the other Christians will despise me and look down on me. Grace Church, let's live up to our name, Grace. Let's make sure that we're not that kind of church, the Pharisee church. Let's commit that if someone after today confesses a secret sin to you or a temptation or being struggling, we, we will deal with them with gentleness and grace. Let's remember Galatians 6 verse 1. Here it is. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you too may be tempted. Let's restore one another gently. Now for the four points at quick pace. You ready? Number one, neglecting our duty. Verse one, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now this whole affair starts with nothing much happening. Actually, nothing at all. David isn't doing anything. It's not a deliberate step towards evil. It's just that David neglects his duty as a king to be engaged with the army. Seems like such a little thing. Now, the context is that Israel is at war. It's in the midst of a war with the Ammonites. This began in chapter 10. A new Ammonite leader, a new Ammonite king came to power. David sent messages to him to show kindness, and he declared war on Israel. So it began there, and it carries on all the way through chapter 11 and 12 and finishes at the end of chapter 12 when David does roll his sleeves up and get involved, and they defeat the Ammonites. Now, David didn't necessarily have to go out on the field of battle personally. Chapter 10, verse 7, he sent Joab, and there was no sin in that as such. But the problem wasn't in David's physical location, but in his personal engagement with the war. And what we see in this chapter is that he is switched off from his duty. And that is shown most clearly by the contrast with Uriah. Look at verse 11, what Uriah says. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander, Joab, and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? Surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. That's the attitude. That's the spirit of someone who's with his colleagues who are out fighting in the army. Even if he's home for three days, he's not going to enjoy the comforts of home. Uriah sleeps at the gate out of solidarity. He's in it. But David is neglected his duty as a king. That's how it all began. Simple. Now, how does this lead to further sin? Because when we neglect to serve God as we should in the place that he's put us in life, it makes us unhappy. It makes us discontented. And that makes us vulnerable to temptation. There's something counterintuitive about all this, especially in our generation. See, we tend to imagine that cutting loose of commitments for a while will make us feel 
satisfied and happy and fulfilled. We imagine that personal sacrifice and self-denial are draining things and discouraging things, and we can only do them for a bit before we have to sort of break off and go and binge watch a series of TV programs. But actually, according to the Bible, the way that God has made us, the way that God has wired reality, is that self-denial brings deep fulfillment. Sacrifice brings satisfaction. It's counterintuitive. Here's the words of Jesus himself. Whoever wants to be my disciple, you want to be a Christian? You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Here's what he says. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. In other words, you try and hold your life to yourself, you actually end up losing it. It slips through your fingers. But you surrender and hand it all over to Jesus Christ. You get it back and a hundred times more. It's counterintuitive. So what this means is that when we cut back on service to others, we become unhappy. Now, Sidebar, I'm not talking here about legitimate rest. God has wired the need for rest into reality as well. God enthroned a day off a week in his law, the Sabbath day, a day of rest and wholeness, enjoying creation. God wants us to rest well. So we're not urging a workaholic mentality here, but we're talking about neglect of duty. Now, duty is a word that's gone quite out of fashion, but it means your responsibilities. How do you neglect your responsibilities, friends? Perhaps you have duties because of your job, you have a job, or because you study. But you frequently turn up late, you take long lunch breaks, you call in sick far too often when you don't need to, you fail to apply yourself to what you're supposed to do. You just, honestly, you know you're being slack, don't you? Does it make you feel happy and fulfilled? It doesn't. What about your duties around the place that you live to help with the cleaning and the housework and running the home? But sometimes you think, oh, you know, well, I, I'm tired. Someone else will do it. I'll just leave it. Someone else will pick up. And instead, you devote yourself to gaming or watching something on a screen, or social media, or whatever it is. But does it feel great? Do you feel good about yourself for that? What about duties in Christian community? We just welcomed 11 new members. That's brilliant. You heard the membership promises. Members promise to show up every Sunday when they can. They promise to be an active part of a life group, a midweek community to give generously of their time and their talents and their resources. But if you regularly skip church, if you only show up when you're on rota, if you're rarely or never seen at a life group, what is it doing for your experience of Christian community, let alone anyone else? It becomes thinner and thinner and less and less rewarding. Does shortchanging the simple duties of Christian community make you more or less satisfied and happy with the experience of church? What about your duty of devotion to God? God has graciously called us into a relationship with him. 
It's a relationship of love. And so we ought to respond with love. Not because we have to, but because we want to, because we love him. And as we heard last week, loving the Lord means with all your heart, the center of who you are, the motivational center, all your heart, all your soul, the eternal part of you, the spiritual part of you, all your strength, your might, your efforts. And to do that, simply, you know, none of this is rocket science. We need to talk to God, don't we? For any relationship to grow, you need to talk to the person. Prayer. And we need to keep God's word in front of us. That's his communication to us. And make his words permeate our entire lives. Teaching them diligently to our children. Making our home life revolve around them. Now if we neglect these simple duties, will we be more happy or less as children of God? You know the answer. When you curtail your duty, you become unhappy. And unhappy Christians are a danger to themselves and others. When you are not happy, you are so much more vulnerable to temptation. You're left wide open to the false promises of the devil and of sin. And that's what we see next. So the first point was neglecting our duty. And the second point is indulging our eyes. Look at verses 2 and 3. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. Now, David goes out one night. He gets up from his bed. I don't know why he's sleeping that time of day. But anyway, off he gets up and goes to take the fresh air in the evening. And he sees a naked woman. My goodness. Was he trying to do this? Did he walk around up there with a pair of binoculars trying to see people? Uh, probably not. Bathsheba was washing herself in the privacy of her own home. David's got the highest rooftop in town. Okay, he's looking down. Was she hoping to be seen? I think that's very unlikely. But the fact is he did see her naked. He caught sight of her. And he didn't just catch a glimpse. He stopped and looked and feasted his eyes on her beauty and as he watched and devoured her beauty it lit a fire in him it's like something caught fire it ignited passion something about this woman just captured his heart and he decided he would take one more step now he notice how it started he saw he just saw and just seeing wasn't a sin being beautiful isn't a sin but he kept on looking, and he yearned for what he saw. Now, this is Adam and Eve all over again. The language here, the writer is very subtle, uh, but deliberate. The language reminds us of the first fall of man, where Adam and Eve saw the fruit that God had told them not to eat, and they saw that it was good. And that word good can be translated beautiful. It's the same word that's used here of Bathsheba. They see what was good and they take the forbidden fruit and history unravels. And this is what David does here. And David, of course, if you've been following this series, you'll know that David is a new start for humanity. God's called him to be the king and through his line will come one who will put the world to rights, the Messiah. So here we have it, as it were, another fall, another fall of man. All the pain. And misery in our world and in our lives starts with someone just seeing and then indulging their eyes. 
So I've got to ask you a question. Where do your eyes wander? Where do your eyes wander, dear brother and sister? Is it the secret shame of pornography that fills you with delirious passion but leaves you with burning shame afterward? You feel soiled. Is it feasting on romantic fiction or rom-coms, although they leave you feeling so discontented with your lot? Is it gazing on someone who is not your spouse with lingering looks and quietly indulging a private fantasy of what life would be like with him or her? Maybe you justify it by thinking, well, when my spouse dies, what would it be like if I married them? Perhaps for some of you, your eyes are wandering elsewhere. Your eyes study the properties and houses on right move, which feeds your heart's desire for the glory that comes with a bigger house and leaves you discontented with what God has given you now. Are you constantly checking your bank balance and seeking to supplement it with scratch cards, lottery tickets, risky investments in the stock market? Do your eyes constantly wander to money? One friend told me, you know, I don't have a problem with pornography. My problem is job websites. Job websites. Always looking for the next move. Never satisfied to serve God in the current position. Sometimes it gets boring. Yeah, but quickly, let's move on to the next thing. What about advertisements? How, you, know, you know why the advertising industry is as big as it is. They play on our fear and greed. Adverts for cars, gadgets, clothes, makeup, holidays in the sun. Or do your eyes wander to the sight of the fit people at the gym? I don't go to a gym, so I never see fit people. But I understand they hang out there. I don't want to be near them. But for some of you, your eyes wander there and you're constantly thinking, if only I could be like that, if only I could be like that. There's a reason why the Kardashians have millions of followers, isn't there? People's eyes wander to beauty. They want to be like that or be near it. Now notice, every single thing I've mentioned, perhaps except for the Kardashians, is a good gift from God. <laughs> you young people who are here and you're hearing me, listen to me, teenagers, I'm not saying that sex is a bad thing. It's a great, powerful thing, a beautiful thing in the right boundaries that God has set. Houses, jobs, money. Cars, romantic fiction, none of these things are bad in and of themselves, in their proper place. So what's the problem? The problem is when we let them shape our longings and our hopes and our dreams, and then they become our chief source of satisfaction, our chief source of inspiration. It's when you find your heart saying, oh, if only, if only, if only I had X, Y, or Z, then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied and complete. Then I would know true joy. If only I had that car. If only I had that bicycle. If only I had that dress. If only I had that jacket. If only I had that pair of trainers or shoes. If only I had that new phone. If only I had a watch like that or a girlfriend like that or a boyfriend like that or a spouse. If only I had a baby. If only I had education, if only I had a PhD, if only I had a lovely face, if only I had an amazing body, if only, if only, if only. Your heart says, I'll be happy if I get that, but not until then. 
because it's captured you. Just like David on the rooftop. You trade things. You trade far too much in for that thing. Therefore, you think you really need it. I remember many years ago, it was probably about 40 years ago, nearly 40 years ago, my dad was a pastor. We were in a small church plant up in the northeast of England, a place called Tynemouth on the coast. And my dad was doing a children's talk. Only a few children. It was a little church. And my dad said, you know, children, there's a difference between what you need and what you want. You know, you need food. You need water. You need a place to live. But chop trumps or lightsabers or toys, these things are just things you want. Now, can any of the children here tell me something that they really need? And my sister put her hand up. She's only little. And she said, in complete sincerity, a gold handbag. <laughs> her heart was set upon it as a young child <laughs> to have this gold handbag. That, in her mind, was one thing in life you really, really need. <laughs> I don't know if she ever got it. Now, the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings of Jesus offers you true satisfaction and true fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But it does involve delayed gratification. It doesn't all come right now. But, you know, your heart and my heart wants to follow our eyes instead of our faith. We want to follow our eyes. And in the end, we find ourselves feeling empty and craving but dissatisfied. And we get dissatisfied with God's goodness to us. We forget that. Because your heart is starting to say, God is not enough. God is not enough. You know, the 10th commandment is very interesting. If you know the 10 commandments, this is, listen to this from Exodus chapter 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male and female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, the Old Testament law is androcentric, androcentric. Centric. It means it's, it's described in ways that, that relate to men, but it obviously applies to women as well. So when it says you shall not cover your neighbor, covet your neighbor's wife, it also means, by extension, you shall not covet your neighbor's husband or the male and female servant. What's that? It's the help you have in the house. The ox and donkey, that's, that's the wealth of the neighbor or anything that belongs, any possessions. Coveting. Now, that means to yearn or to crave. It means an inordinate longing for something. And we never break the 10th commandment without breaking the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Friends, where do your eyes wander? And what does that reveal about the state of your heart? And where are you looking right now in your life for the deepest satisfaction? Now, this is serious because of where it can lead. At the moment, nobody knows what's going on in David's heart. He was neglecting his duties. He indulged his eyes. At the moment, it's just between David and God, okay? But the third step takes it to the next stage, and it's to break our vows. And in David and Bathsheba's case, both were married, and their adultery meant breaking marriage vows. Look again with me, please, at the passage. Um, chapter 3, uh, sorry, verse 3. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and 
he slept with her. Wow. As quick as that, these steps are reported with brutal honesty and frankness, no, no details. David, first of all, sends to find out a bit more. He gets her name and her address. The modern equivalent would be to find her on Facebook or Instagram or some other medium and have a good look first. Scroll through what available photos are on there and then try and get her number. In David's case, he discovers she's married and her family is known to him. In fact, her dad and her husband are two of David's mighty men, two of his greatest and most valiant allies. You know, it's time to stop, isn't it? It's really time to stop. But she was very beautiful. And that phrase means beautiful face and a great figure. And that vision of beauty has captured his heart. The longer he goes on with this, the more ready David is to take risks that will break his vows and break people. And so he sends for her. There's a great vicar of a church in Oxford, Vaughan Roberts, who once said to his staff team, I'm going to quote it from memory, he said something like this, be very careful because there will happen in your life once or twice someone will walk into your life for, for whom you would, lose, you would leave everything and lose everything. Just once or twice. Just took one for David. Now we don't know how, how complicit Bathsheba was in this affair. We don't know if she was flattered by the attentions of a powerful man and she just thought, oh, what the heck. Or we don't know if she was basically coerced into it. I doubt she had much choice in the matter. I doubt it. Surely David is abusing his power here. His kingship, which he completely owed to God. So they have sex. But notice, nobody wakes up one day, just wakes up and decides to have an affair with a colleague's spouse. It happens gradually. And Tim Chester, in his marvellous book, discerns three levels of adultery. Physical, heart, and spiritual. Physical adultery is obvious. Perhaps your spouse isn't what you hoped for and you decided to look elsewhere. Perhaps singleness became more than you felt you could bear, especially when friends got married. Perhaps the mundane realities of family life have got so dull that you crave some excitement. Perhaps your work and your life have got so pressured that you feel you needed some relief. Perhaps you don't know how it happened, but people get into physical adultery. But that never happens without heart adultery first. Jesus Christ put it like this. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks lustfully on a woman, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. Just looking lustfully is committing adultery in the heart. In other words, it starts with the heart. It starts with the imagination, the thought life, before it ever gets to a bedroom. Now these two kinds of adultery, physical and heart, only get going when a deeper adultery is taking place in a person's life. A more profound betrayal, which is spiritual adultery. What is this? When we replace our love for Jesus with desire for someone else. You know, our primary marriage, if you're a Christian, you're married to Jesus Christ. Read Ephesians 5. The greatest marriage in the universe is the marriage between Jesus and his church. The Bible uses this most intimate of human relationships as an example of the real marriage, which is between God and us. Jesus is your true spouse. So if you're consciously obey, disobeying Jesus right now, 
Have a good hard look at your heart, friends. There's a chance, a very good chance, that you're cheating on Jesus. And that is adultery. Spiritual, which makes you open to heart adultery, which makes you more prone to physical adultery. And once this deed is done, a terrible and miserable set of consequences unfolded. Now, the key aspect to this fourth step is hiding. David takes more and more steps to cover up. And the cover up leads him to murder. I'll just read a few verses from verse 4. She was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. The significance of that is that she's just finished her period. So she wouldn't have been able to conceive during that time. So this must be David's child. There's no doubt. This one night stand has got her pregnant. And she sends the word to David, I am pregnant. So there there comes this, this gruesome tale of politics and power, a real cover-up. There's sending of people here and there. She sends the message to David. David sends the message to Joab, the the trusted warlord, the right-hand man who's out in the field leading the troops, and says, send him back to me. So Joab comes, and David does everything in his power to get this guy to go home and sleep with his wife, because then they can claim that the baby is his. But Joab won't do it. Now, it's, it's tantalizing to, to think, how much did he suspect? How much does Joab already guess or know from gossip and rumors? The, the, the text is silent on that. But he won't go home. So David even calls him back and quizzes him. Why didn't you go home last night? Gives him a great dinner. Gets him as drunk as he can. But even drunk, Joab is a better man than David at this point. Sorry, Uriah, I'm saying Joab. Verse 11, Uriah stands up to him. And so David, the next day, having thought about it all night, decides he will uh, take things further. And, I mean, can you believe where we've got to within just a few verses? Um, Verse 14, a terrible letter. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Uriah is carrying his own death sentence. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. My goodness, look at the steps that David is now taking to hide his sin. How do we do it? Let me ask you three questions for for yourself to answer. What is your secret sin? How do you hide it from other people? How long has it been going on? Can you see what it leads to? It always leads to something dying. So we're all four steps from death. It starts by neglecting your duty, then indulging your eyes, then taking steps to break your vows, and then hiding. Temptation and sin can take us down paths that we never dreamed we would take. You say, oh, it's not me. I would never do something like that. Don't think that you are a better person than King David. You are not. 
Read the Psalms. He was a better believer than you and I, and he fell. Now we're going to end this sermon soon. We're going to sing. We're going to come to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. We're going to take bread and wine and remember his death on the cross for us, his body broken, his blood shed for our sins, for the forgiveness of many. Next week, Edom is going to come and take us into chapter 12 and into Psalm 51 and take us through David's full and frank repentance. But I want to finish by pointing out, friends, you do not struggle alone. You do not struggle alone. Please don't. Do not struggle alone. There is one who is for you. He's so for you that he went to the cross. And he knows everything about you. Everything you've ever done, thought, said, your motives, everything you have doing now, everything you will. He knows everything about you. His name is Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds to a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away all fear. You see, Jesus Christ is for you. We have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, but he did not sin. He's the only one who resisted the temptation for his whole life long. Hebrews, the letter of the Hebrews in the New Testament says, the word of God exposes us. Do you feel exposed today? Everything is uncovered and lay bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But the writer to the Hebrews goes on. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. This table that we come to in a few moments is not here to condemn you, friend. It is a, a pledge of Jesus' love to you. It's a pledge of his forgiveness of you. It's his promise to you. Come in faith and receive what he has done for you and put away your temptation and sin. Let's pray.